You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. So we're in the middle of a series that we've been walking through the, the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, the 1 Corinthian church was kind of in a mess. They just, to be perfectly honest, were a disaster. Paul was very nice to them early on, encouraging and affirming, and as he should be, but he's got a lot of specific stuff that he's having to talk to them about. And uh, last week we talked about that crazy incident with a guy and his stepmom. And uh, this morning we're going to see that he tackles another very specific thing. There was such conflict going on in the church that, that people were taking each other to court, just getting into all kinds of conflict. But before we, we get into that, uh, this, this week I read a little bit uh, about the Witness Protection Program. So as I read about it, apparently like 8,500 people that, that you know, the federal authorities are willing to admit to have relocated people in their, their Witness Protection Program. And it was fascinating reading that, and they were saying, you know, you could be a son or a granddaughter and not even realize that your parents or grandparents were one of those people. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if anybody in there, any of you in the Federal Witness Protection Program, like we should know about past life, you know, but uh, it was fascinating as a strategy to, to take down mobsters is really how it came about and, and to offer people who were entrenched in the criminal organization, who are criminals themselves, but to be willing to give them a fresh start if they would testify against the higher-ups, like we've all have watched enough movies, right, to know that 90% of it's not true, but there is a little bit of a 10% truth there. You know how it works. They would flip the person and get them to testify against the bigger crook. And so reading about their lives, you know, it's not all fun and games because as soon as you're in the witness protection program, they come to your home, they whisk you away. You're not allowed to take any pictures, no history, you're really not even allowed to continue the same hobbies that you used to have anymore because if you have that thing, right, you know, whatever your thing is, the, those who are out to get you can kind of find you and they reinsert you with a new identity, new social security number, new everything into a no-name community somewhere and give you a little stipend to live on initially till you can find a job and uh, it'll give you a little used car until you can start making your way into this world. And, and reading some of the stories, I just... You know, loneliness, isolation, living in fear that you're going to be found out and just for the rest of your lives living in that kind of, of world. We're going to see this morning that God gives us a new start and he gives us a new beginning as well. But it is way better than any kind of witness protection plan. So take your Bible with me if you would and let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to read the first few verses and then I want to pray for us as we begin our, our service today. Read with me if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says this. He switches subjects. He's changing gears, if you will. And he says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? He's saying, guys, What's the deal? You, you have a legal complaint against somebody else in your church, and you're rather than settling it amongst yourselves, amongst the Christians, amongst the, the saints, the saved, and the church body, you're going to court. You're pursuing an attorney, somebody who doesn't know God, not a God-fearer, doesn't operate by the same morality, the same standards that God operates, and you're asking that individual, that judge, to decide between the two of you. He's like, what are you guys doing? He goes on and unpacks it. He says, 
Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try such trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? Now, I've got to tell you, I don't have a clue what it means to judge an angel. Can I just be honest with you? And I didn't spend a lot of time trying to figure out what this cool thing is going to look like. I think after it's all said and done, we're going to be sitting there. You know, we are given authority and be there with Jesus. And we will be part of that judgment session that comes down, the final judgment upon angels and all of that. And I don't have a clue what that's going to be like. And we could spend quite a bit of time talking about it, and we'd probably be 90% wrong. But Paul is saying this, look, if we're going to be set in judgment of the world, let's get back to reality. Why can't you judge this little, silly little thing that's in front of you right now? He says in verse 4, So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute against the brothers? Once again, they were claiming to be wise and to have all this wisdom, and yet Paul is like, your wisdom is worthless. You can't even discern between these little things. Isn't somebody wise enough? In dog years, you know, like, how many dog owners? A lot of dog owners, right? You know, you talk about dog years. In dog years, this church would have been like a teenager. So they were at the time where they had grown up a little bit. They knew some things, but they didn't know as much as they thought they knew, and they knew enough to get in trouble, right? That sound about right? I was there. All of us were there. If you're probably thinking, like, yeah, I was absolutely there. And they're in a mess. And Paul says, you're just, you don't have a clue. Isn't, can't somebody discern this? Verse 6, he says, can it, can it be that there's no one wise enough among you to settle a dispute among the brothers? Verse 6, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. You've failed. You've lost. Why not rather suffer wrong? Hey, if somebody does something against you, why are you taking them to court? You should just suck it up when it's in the church. Or, why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong, and you defraud even your own brothers. Hey, not only do you take it up against that guy that did something against you, but you're the guy doing stuff to other people. You're defrauding and wronging each other. Stop this foolish madness. I'm going to share with you this morning about the new identity that Jesus gives each of us. Paul, in just a second, after we talk about this, this is kind of a specific thing that he's talking about, but then he's going to go to some very general principles, and we're going to talk about that new identity that Jesus gives us that changes the way we even relate to one another, and it changes our identity of who we are in Christ. But first, I want to pray for us, so pray with me, would you? Father, we are grateful for the Lord Jesus who died for us, who saves us, who rose again from the dead, and who changes our life. And Father, because of that, we know and recognize that you change everything about us. Jesus really does change everything. And I pray this morning that your word would help us to see the incredible new identity that we have in Christ. The new identity that we have when we surrender our life fully to Jesus as Lord. Father, it's a privilege to worship today, to sing, to talk about you. And I pray, Lord, as we begin just this time of looking at your word, that our hearts will be open. I pray that you would speak through your spirit 
through the eternal power of your word. And I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus, your son. Amen. First thing I want you to recognize this morning is that our new identity that we have in Christ means that we have new relationships. When a person has lived separate in their life from Christ and, and apart from Jesus, there is just a, a whole world that they live in that Jesus changes completely when we surrender our life, when we go from that darkness to light, when we go from sin and death to forgiveness and life. That, that all of that changes. And part of that is that God gives us a new relationship. You see, we talked last week about the man that was with his stepmother and, and sexually, and Paul's just like, what are you guys, what are you doing? I'm grieved that you as a church that you're not helping this, this brother out of this sin and out of this mess. You see, Jesus assumes that when he comes into our life, God assumes that it changes our relationships. Not only do does our identity change, but out of that new identity, our relationships with others change. You see, that's what Paul is talking about here. He's like, you guys are taking each other to court. You're, 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 you're defrauding one another. You're doing wrong to one another. And then if somebody has slighted you, you're dragging them before court, and you ought to at least be able to get before the church, before wise brothers and sisters, and solve this thing. You guys are Christians. You're the ones who know the one true God. Why would you choose to put your case before a lower court, before a lower authority? And why wouldn't you solve this and figure this out among yourselves? You see, when we have a relationship with Christ, even our relationships change. Sometimes when people trust Christ, or it, it, the journey often follows this. When somebody is on that path to, to surrender their life to Christ, oftentimes... There is a, there's an impetus, there's a, a problem, there's a heartache, there's a situation that stops them in their tracks, that gets their attention, that makes them look up. If you were to look at your life spiritually, if you didn't go up into, grow up in a Christian home, that probably happened to you. Oftentimes, it's a parents having a kid for the first time, like, oh my goodness, I'm now responsible for this kid, and and I've got to figure out how to raise them. I better get God in here and figure this out. Sometimes it's a positive thing. Oftentimes it's a bad thing. Failed marriages or financial troubles or whatever where people are like, this is not working and I need some help and they start looking up to God. And along the way, uh, as we begin doing that, that, that God began speaking in our heart and drawing us to Him and convicting of our sin and we surrender our life and He, he changes our life for the better and... And what happens sometimes, though, is, is sometimes when people are trying to figure this God thing out, they almost treat it like when you're playing Monopoly, the little get-out-of-jail-free card, okay? You know the little, the little, the nice little card? When was the last time you played Monopoly? Yeah, that's probably an old illustration. I don't know. I was watching Minecraft, what other games. I don't know what other really modern illustration I can use there. But sometimes we treat like, okay, if I, if I pursue God... He's just going to give me what I want. Almost like the three wishes and the magic genie. He's going to solve every little thing I'm into and like all of a sudden my life's going to be good. And that's not ultimately what God is after. God is after you. He wants a relationship with you. He's pursuing your soul. And so when I say that when we surrender our life to Christ, he gives us a new identity, he gives us new relationships, I'm not saying he's going to wave his magic wand over your relationships, whether it's a marriage or whether it's with your parents or it's your a child, God, God 
It's not obligated to just solve all of those and make them the nice happily ever after. But what God does do is he changes you. And when he changes you, your relationships by definition and by nature change the whole thing. It's almost like there's a, if you can think about relationships almost in the chemistry mindset, like there's these two substances or two atoms. You change one half of that equation, one part of that, then that affects the other. And very often what happens is one person begins living for Jesus, then the other person begins saying, whoa, that's really good, I like that. Because you see, when God changes you, He changes your heart. You then begin loving others as you should. Oh, it's a challenge, and oh, there's some process, and you've got to work through all of that. But after a while, people are like, oh, I kind of like this new you. This is kind of nice. Like, you're really like sorry when you do something wrong or you're really trying to get this right why is that and in that moment you're able to say it's all because of god in my life it's all because of jesus and two things happen at that point a person either says i don't want anything to do with that and they run away from god it's not your fault or they go hmm, maybe i need a little bit of that and they become a little more open but what you and i need to realize is is that our new identity means that God begins to work and to change our relationships, and he does it through us. And he expects our relationships to one another to be very different than what we grew up in. It means if you didn't grow up in a Christian home, it means if you haven't experienced a, a, a life that's been, and where grace has been at the point of, rela of the relationships, has been at the center of that, where Jesus is in the middle of those friendships and those, those relationships, it means that God especially wants to teach you what new relationships look like that are grace-filled and based on Him. So in our new identity that we have in Jesus means those relationships look very, very different. Second thing I want you to recognize is not only does that new identity mean our relationships change, but it also means that our lifestyles change. Look what verse 9 says. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous the wrongdoers, literally. He's on this little subject in verse 7 and 8 about doing wrong. Do you not know that wrongdoers will inherit, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Literally, stop being deceived. But you guys are missing this. He says, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I can't help but read, I want, that's the, the verse for my next point that we're going to talk about, but I can't help but read some hope in the middle of this. And such were some of you. But, big but, circle, highlight, but you were washed. That was the old you, you got a new you. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And the power and the authority and the working of the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for you and rose from the dead, you have been changed. And that was applied to your soul through the working of the Holy Spirit. Before we talk about that, I want us to notice the new lifestyle that Jesus has in our life. When we surrender our life to Christ, there is a, a lifestyle shift. Paul says, guys, look, don't you realize that people who continually practice all this stuff, 
they are not inheriting the kingdom of God. They're not born again. They're not going to heaven. They don't have a relationship with Christ. If they're going to your church, religious are they? Check, you bet. Are they a person of faith at some level? You bet, check. But they really, truly don't know the God of heaven. They truly haven't surrendered their life to Christ. The Lord Jesus hasn't come and changed their life and their lifestyle is just evidence of that reality. You see, we see the reality of our lives by the way we live. It's a completely foreign concept to God for us to profess one kind of faith here and yet live our life over there. There's a word for that. It's called hypocrite. It's called hypocrisy. And none of us like that very much in every area of life, right? We don't. If our loved ones, our spouse, or our friends are living that way, we get incensed. We're like, you're just a hypocrite. We'll call them out on it. Well, God's calling us out on it. He says, look, don't you realize that people whose lives are valuing and lived out in this manner, don't you realize that they are apart from God? It doesn't matter what they say with their lips. Their life is speaking volumes. Now, does this mean that for you and I to be saved, we've got to clean our whole life up? No, that's not what Paul is talking about. Is, is he saying then that we have to work all of this and make this happen? No, he's not talking about that either. You see, grace means that God forgives us of all of that by, based on what he did, that Jesus died for us, but he also puts that new heart within us, that, that, that new life, and the Holy Spirit comes in and he changes us. See, some people think when they're trying to figure out and understand Christ, and understand Jesus, what it means to truly follow God, that you've got to kind of work your way up the ladder. Okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offload this sin. I'm going to stop getting drunk, and I'm going to start hanging out with, stop hanging out with the guys, and I'm going I'm to stop sleeping around, and I'm going oh, to offload the pornography. I've got I to gotta work my way up this ladder and deal with all this stuff. And then maybe one day I can finally be, finally be good enough, and God can accept me, and... And I can do some good stuff over here. They'll kind of make up. That's not the way any of it works at all. The way it works is, God, I have sinned and messed up in all of these areas. God, would you simply receive me, not based on me trying to do stuff, but based on your son Jesus dying for us. We're, that's what it means to be a person of true faith, a person who has surrendered their life to Christ, saying, Lord, I've messed my life up living it my way. I want you to be in charge. I surrender my life to you. And when that happens, our lifestyle changes. God puts a new inclination in us. There's a, a newfound desire that, honestly, we find kind of shocking before. You know, before Christ, we're, we're okay if we're not living that great. We don't like the consequences of it. The consequences of it stink. But we're okay in our heart doing it. But afterwards, God does something amazing and he begins to change us. And these things, this list, are just so clearly what God does. You see, there, God has a very clear standard of, of right from wrong. It was popular at one point, you know, the for a while in our country, in the, in the U.S., to say 
for a church to say, well, truth is absolute and morals are absolute morals. And then kind of what was popular in the college campuses back in the 70s and, and 80s even, well, it's all relative. What's right for me is not necessarily right for you. What's right for you is not right for me. And kind of, okay, so if your moral code is this, well, mine's this. And, and, and Christians began engaging as a, an apologetics, trying to engage college students. Well, morality is, is absolute and God's true. That is true. But you know where our culture is today? It's gone even more than that. I don't hear college students talking a lot about that relative morality. There's just... There is none anymore. Like, there isn't any. <laughs> you know, it's like, who cares? I didn't do what I want to do. Like, there's nothing. We've just kind of eroded past all of that. And it's so funny to me because you can never get away from that. If you lived in California right now, you know, the, it's, you would be bad if you choose to drink out of a straw. You'd be a bad person. Bad. Breaking the law. Like, how dare you? You whale killer, you, you whatever. And I'm not getting into environmentalism and all of that. I'm not mocking, I truly am not. But every law in our country, everything is based on a transcendent right and wrong, like a standard. I mean, everything. It's just it's the way the world works. You get away with You think you can try to change it in your mind, whatever you want. And God's like, guys, I'm the supernatural authority, the supreme judge of the universe, and I'm looking down and I'm telling you the sexually immoral. That's a general generic word. Anyone engaging habitually, regularly in sexual morality, they don't really know me when that's their common life. Consistent idolaters, consistent adulterers, people running out, chasing other women or chasing other men out of marriage, definitely don't know me. Those who practice homosexuality. There's two words in, in this, in, in your translation, might have two words for this. The ESV just kind of put them together. In the Roman world, homosexuality was common. It was, it was widely accepted. If you were a Roman citizen, it was lawful and legal as long as you were the, uh, uh, the more active partner. So oftentimes, and, and you were engaging others who were not Roman citizens. And so your translation may mention the word effeminate or maybe the more passive partner. And the second word is the more active partner. And, and literally what it's describing is, is the standard in the Roman world. Paul is saying, God is saying, it doesn't matter which side of that equation is, is it's all wrong before God. It's not what God says is designed and acceptable before him as a standard. He says, it's wrong. Thieves, those who are greedy, drunkards, etc., revilers, those who are just full of criticism and anger and vengeance and just ugh, venom, right? We've all known people like that. Like, if that's your heart, there's something wrong in your heart. You, you are in need of God to change you and to save you, to change your life. And categorically, there's consequences when we live opposite of that standard of God. Now, the, the amazing thing is, is that everybody has lived that way at one time in their life. Everybody in this entire world, all of you and me, live that in our heart. Even if you grew up in a Christian family as a young person, and maybe you didn't commit some of the things on this list, maybe you didn't grow up in a Christian home and didn't commit some of the things on this list. There's other things on this list and other lists that you did do. And what God is not saying here is that, hey, I'm going to hold you accountable for your past. In fact, what he's telling us in just a second is, is I want you to realize it's your 
future that I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about the new, about the new you now, after you know Jesus. So when Jesus comes into your life and part of this new identity that you have, he changes your relationships with everybody, but he changes your, your lifestyle. Our lives go from not looking like this to looking something very differently. He, he completely makes that new. Our life changes. The culture around us increasingly wants to make these things one of a couple of things, either an illness, right? More and more, I mean, I'll pick one. Drunkenness would be easy. And, you know, that would include drug addictions and all of that. Increasingly an illness. But, you know, days gone by, I mean, somebody who's stealing, you know, they're a klepto. They're just addicted to, to stealing stuff. In the world around us, that's part of that changing world where morality is not just relative, it's just increasingly non-existent, that we're just all victims of our own makeup, of how we are. Uh, and God's like, no, this is not illness, it's not a sickness, it's not a disease, it's not mental illness, it's a sin problem. You and I need to realize when we are listening to everything the world tells us around us, they have part of the truth. It's not that they don't have some truth, they do. But, but reality is, is these things are sin. So, so look at it this way. The world around us assumes that there's only two parts to us as people. Physical, that's you get surgery or you go to therapy on your body, your knee, having whatever's going on, that's the physical part. Mental, psychological on the inside, so you go to a therapist or psychologist. But we in the church know there's a third part that the world doesn't accept, that doesn't know about, and that impacts all of this, and that is our soul, that we are an eternal being with a morality rooted in our soul. And so the world is trying to fix a broken person only with only two-thirds of the deck. It'd be like trying to win, you know, the hand, and you've only got two-thirds of the cards, you know? You can't, I mean, if you're playing poker and you don't even have the chance to get all the other, you just don't have everything there. And these sin issues are rooted in our soul. And because you're one person, you're not truly schizophrenic, your sins that are in your soul affect your mind and affect your body. All of it gets impacted. So you go and become, and you have this thing to go toward drinking, and you get drunk regularly, your body gets addicted, but your soul is there, your body gets there, and then your mental and your, the, the, you know, all of your thinking gets affected. It affects all of it. And the world is only dealing with two-thirds of it. What Paul is telling us is all of these things are rooted in our soul, our moral fabric of who we are. So yes, there's truth. There's Go to detox, go to any of these things, that there's things we need to think about that we've got to address that is not directly the God's word that speaks to, but you can't ignore that these are root issues, sin issues. So when Jesus comes into our life and saves us, he pulls us out of all of that. The solution is not what the world's trying to do today, which is to make us all innocent and good and pure, and we're just a victim to our own science, our own physical, physiological makeup, our own whatever our mental experiences have been growing up in whatever home we've got. There's an accountable part of our soul that before God, he says, you're responsible. You can't blame this on your mama, can't blame it on your daddy, can't blame it on your culture, can't blame it on your society, can't blame it on your circumstances. You're responsible before a holy God. 
and he changes us when Jesus comes into our life, pulls us out of that junk, and changes our life. This third thing that I really am excited about is not only does Jesus give us a new identity in our relationships, a new identity in our lifestyle, he pulls us out of all of this. But thirdly, he gives us um, a new you. Look what he says in, in verse, seven, verse 11. And such were some of you. Paul's not looking down his nose all high and mighty and judgmental and talking about all those people over there. He's like, guys, that was you. Such were, past tense, long term, that was your habit of life, but you were washed. Your life was that way continually, but there came. And you can't, I can't explain it. The English doesn't do, very, doesn't do justice to the original Greek here, but what he says is, you were this way habitually through life. Point came and you got washed. Point came, you have been uh, sanctified. You've been set apart and holy. Point came and you have been declared righteous before God. It doesn't matter what your whole life has been. You are changed. In the Roman culture and the Roman world of this day, uh, if a woman were a prostitute, or even a male were a prostitute, they would have been uh, a part of a class of people that they would have been, I think it's where we get our word infamous, it would be infamia, would be the, the name. And they, once you were part of that class, you were seen as forever tainted, never able to leave that class whatsoever. Something reminds me a little bit of like Hinduism, right? You're born into this caste and you're stuck at whatever level you're in. I mean, Hinduism as a religion is horrible for human rights and, and all kinds of things as people, but you're stuck there. So even if you stop that lifestyle, even if there was something that changed and you were no longer living that way, the world will still look at you and say, that's still you. And what Paul says, but when God looks at you, it doesn't matter what your past life has been. It doesn't matter. Make it the worst case scenario in your brain, the worst of everything. He says, that's done. When you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, when you truly go all in with him and ask him to save you and to be Lord of your soul, your entire past, he now washes. He washes you. He sanctifies. He puts his holiness declaration upon you. And he declares you to be good, not ungodly, not sinful. It's like, I look at your whole past and I declare you to be absolutely right and good. Guys, this is nothing short of breathtaking amazing. The new identity he gets, he puts us in the community with one another and he confers on us unbelievable things. He gives us that, that new washing, that, that new identity is that he, he washes us. The Holy Spirit comes into our life and it has this effect of cleaning us up. You know, whenever anything that we own is dirty or fouled, it's not beautiful, right? Filthy, oh. And it, it's not very useful. Things that are not dirty, or things that are dirty, they're all fouled up or whatever. I don't care if it's a, it, it just, they're, just they're a mess. They're not useful and they're not beautiful. Here's the point. When God washes you, it doesn't matter how vile a person's life has been. He washes them and he makes them beautiful. And he makes them useful to him, to his world, and the 
world around them. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what a person's life has been. Well, Sean, I haven't ever been a prostitute. Okay, I'm glad. But you've been a liar. You've been addicted to something. You've been all kinds of stuff in your life. And when God looks at it, he's horrified at that. But when you trusted Christ, or if you don't know Jesus yet, when you do finally surrender to Jesus, God washes you spiritually. He washes that soul, if you will. And he makes you beautiful. And he makes you useful to him. He, he makes us holy. He sanctifies us. Literally, he, he calls us to be holy. He not only washes us, but he, he, he makes us special to him. You guys know I love the outdoors and I love hiking and all of that. And my, my, You know what my souvenirs are? We go places. I like free stuff. No, I'm not taking the towels out of the hotel room. I'm not doing any of that kind of stuff. Um, like when, when uh, I think it was five years ago, my sons and I hiked the Northville Placid Trail from Northville, which is you know near Amsterdam, up to Lake Placid. I mean, through the heart of the Adirondacks, about 120, 30 miles or so. I could take you to the spot on the bridge where we had dinner one night, two or three nights in, where at a Luska Pass lean-to right on the river, and there was a, a little piece of, of wood. It looked like driftwood, but it's, you know, I always think of driftwood like in the ocean, but this was just, uh, it was bleached out, it was dry, it was very light, and it just, no, just it was a nice little stick, and I picked it up, and I carried it for miles after that. That's why I had to make sure it was light, no big log or anything I'm bringing home. And it's my souvenir. If you were going to my office today, you would see it right on my shelf with the books. Because I can in a moment see that, and the memory is what I treasure and value, not the stick. That stick is an average, ordinary, common stick. There are probably uh, 30 million trillion sticks in the world. I don't know however many, but, you know, there's nothing special about any of them. But when I picked that stick up that day, it belonged to me. And I put it in a spot that said, you're not a common stick anymore. You're a special stick. That's what God is doing when he sanctifies us. It means that he is taking us out of the commonality of the world, not just out of sin, definitely out of that, but he's taking us out of the commonality of the world, and he says, you now are a treasure of mine. I'm conferring upon you holiness. You are sanctified because of your relationship to me. You are sanctified. I'm calling you a saint. That's why the Bible, that's why Christians are called saints in the Bible. It's not be out of what we have done. That's why the church in years gone by have gotten it all messed up. Saints are not based on what people do. Saints are based on what Jesus did for us on the cross. He saved us. He pulls us out of the mess and out of the sin and out of the world and makes us his child. And he says, you are special to me. He makes us holy, sanctifies us. And then he gives us a new declaration. He says, when I look at your life, I don't see any of that junk anymore. I see you as only as good. A couple of weeks ago, I worked on putting a new, I say I worked, my sons worked, my father, my dad worked, I worked, but we worked on putting a new flooring in our dining room and our living room. It took me a week to level out and prep our dining room floor, and we laid the floor in a day. I mean, it's just my floor was a mess, crazy things that you have to engineer and figure out when you're working in a house that was built before 1900, you know, just I mean, crazy. 
If I were to take you into that home and a couple of people say, well, how do you like it? And I probably go too pragmatic. Of course, yeah, it's beautiful, looks great. But I'm thinking, yeah, but talk to me in 20 years if it's still lasting and I don't see everything with it. But I could take you into that floor and I could show you the one spot that I know something happened. The floor must have dipped there and that board drops a little bit. I could take you to these two runs that we broke the boards a little too close and you can see it. And I could show you the little places and we didn't quite carry it close enough to the wall and I had to cheat and put a little piece here and where this board just doesn't look right and I could take you all of that so we all do like when you do your project I don't care if it's mowing your lawn or whatever right you're part of you that steps back and you want to say that's good looks good but if you are do-it-yourself or person you look at your project and if you're like me you're like that's pretty good <laughs> you know right nobody will see the flaws but I do here's the deal God looks at you, and when you surrender your life to Jesus, he says, I don't care what any of the rest of the world says. I don't even care what you say about your life. I look at you, and I'm declaring you to be good. I, as a supreme ruler, authority in this world, nobody's authority is over mine. Nobody else's opinion matters. I'm looking at your life now that you have surrendered your life to Jesus and I've forgiven you of your sin, not based on what you did, but based on what my son Jesus did. I look at your life and I declare you to be not just good, but perfect. That's what this declaration of righteousness, God confers upon us that seal. Guys, that's amazing. You see, what Paul's been talking about is, is, guys, our lives are messed up. Guy with his mother, stepmom, people going to court and suing one another and wronging each other. He's like, Paul's like, guys, you're a new creation. You've got a new identity. God of heaven has changed you and saved you. Live out of that lifestyle. Praise God out of that life. Sometimes you and I have a hard time accepting that declaration of God in our life. I hear people often, and it's popular in Christian circles, well, I could forgive others, or I just can't forgive myself. I know God forgives me, I can't forgive myself. Can I just tell you, there's some really flawed thinking in that, and really it doesn't line up scripturally. Usually when you say you've got to forgive yourself, you're really trying to earn God's grace all over again. You're trying to say, well, I just don't want to feel bad about myself. I wish I hadn't done it. I can't let myself off the hook. Listen, here's the deal. That might sound really spiritual and pious. You're trying to forgive yourself. God's like, I'm not asking you to forgive yourself. I'm asking you to trust me that my word matters more than you, and I say I have forgiven you, and it's done. All you need to do is accept my forgiveness. I've declared you to be righteous, Quit calling me a liar and trying to make yourself something else that you're not. Usually when we're trying to forgive ourselves, it's we're trying to do God's job for him. And we're trying to give God a reason that he should forgive us. And we're trying to overcome shame and everything else. And ultimately what we're really trying to do is become God to ourselves. And God's not that impressed. He's just like, look, stop that and accept that I have washed you, I have sanctified you, I've declared you to be righteous, that's all you got to do is accept that. When you accept all of that, the need to forgive yourself goes away because you value what God says about you more than you value what you say about you. I'm telling you, folks, this is the gospel of grace in our life. What you and I need more than anything is to have God's perspective in our life. That makes us whole. 
That is what changes our life. That, even as Christians, once we surrender our life to Jesus, our thinking has to be reoriented. What matters is what God says about us. Way more than what we say about ourselves and definitely way more than what everybody else says about us. The new relationship we have with Christ gives us a new relationship, a new identity, which is new relationships with one another. It gives us a new lifestyle, but it gives us a new you. You look at, God looks at us, he says, I see somebody who's washed. I see somebody who's holy. I see somebody who's perfect and good because you belong to me, and that's all that matters. Folks, we should praise and rejoice God that if you have that grace in your life if you don't know Christ that's what you need and all you need to do to receive it is to simply surrender your life to Jesus Lord I have messed up I've done one or two of those things on that list and that's been my description of my life my identity but God I've done a bunch of other things God forgive me I don't want to do that anymore would you save me and make me your child would you confer upon me your righteousness would you call me good and perfect? Would you call me holy and pull me up and make me yours? Would you wash me as only you can do? Wherever you are in this this morning, your heart should worship and take that next step toward God for his grace and forgiveness operating in your life. So let's worship him. I'm going to ask you to bow and ask our team to come up and to lead us in a song or two of response. Would you pray with me as they come? Father, I'm grateful that the Lord Jesus calls us good and righteous. Lord, help us to allow that to be all that we need and feel. Lord, I know that, um, that it's a struggle for us. We, our lives are not perfect after we trust Christ, but our lifestyles can be. You pull us out of habitual sin. We will all struggle with various things, from pride to ego to moments of greed to lust to all kinds of stuff but that's far different than living a complete life identity in those worlds Lord you save us you pull us out of that chunk and we still know that we need to grow and, uh, and experience your grace even more but we know father that we're going to be that work of grace until the day we die until then help us to, to take stock and what Paul is driving home to us this morning, that today, we know Jesus, we're washed, we are holy, and we are perfectly good and declared righteous because of what he has done and said. Lord, help us to not, to stop trying to earn our own goodness, to overcome our own mess, whether forgiving ourselves or doing better, help us to simply trust and rest in your declaration. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Visit us on Sundays at 10 a.m. or online at riveralbany.com.